Available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Hello and welcome to me, Nigel Huren, to another edition of Outlook. This one being recorded on Wednesday the 1st of November 2023. And in this week's edition we start a new series of stories from Coventry Echoes of the Past with Margaret. There's something about Halloween, of course, not surprisingly. The ghoulies and ghosts from English heritage there. And of course it's about time of the year when we start thinking about the Coventry Blitz and things that did it. But it's a different angle on it this time. What if one of those what if angles? Now, many of you uh, may be vapours or may not be vapours, but we're finding out more about it, what it means and what it doesn't mean uh, in an article which I recorded earlier. Of course, Alan is back again with hurdy-gurdy days. And finally, uh, Day proved he wasn't frightened of ghosts by going on the ghost train of the uh, miniature railway. But all that, uh, uh, before, before we go into all that, there's the local news uh, with a new voice of Pete and Elaine to start. Outlook News. Residents in Coventry are facing potential disruption to bin collections as refuse workers have voted to strike in a fresh dispute with the City Council. The industrial action relates to the local authority potentially scrapping a working condition known as task and finish. Workers are currently allowed to leave after finishing their rounds rather than stay until the end of the day but the City Council has said that this must now end. Workers have voted for industrial action by a margin of 74%, said the Unite Union. More than 40 HGV refuse lorry drivers have already voted for strike action, which will likely take place in the next couple of months if talks fail with the Council. The Council described the Unite move as frustrating, as no changes had been made and nothing has been decided. But One Kassab, National Lead Officer for Unite, said, Coventry had six months of strike action last year. Another strike in 2023 would be a colossal failure for the Council. Unite members are rightly standing up and defending their terms and conditions. A spokesman for the City Council said, A small proportion of crew are UNITE members, so while we wait to see if we are notified of an intention to strike, our focus now is on ensuring that we can continue to provide a bin collection service across the city. We want to reassure residents that we will do all we can to achieve this. Electric Vehicles Jaguar Land Rover has opened a £250 million electric vehicle testing facility in Coventry. Based at its engineering centre in Whitley, it will help develop JLR's next generation of pure electric Range Rover, Defender, Discovery and Jaguar models. The company says that the ability to test EVs on site will cut down on the costs and emissions resulting from sending fleets of prototype cars around the world for test assessments. The 323,000 square feet facility will have £40 million of testing systems and includes a series of extreme weather climate chambers. 
capable of simulating the harshest of conditions from minus 40 degrees centigrade up to 55 degrees centigrade. More than 200 EV engineers are already working at the facility and a further 150 jobs are set to be created. Thomas Muller, Executive Director of Pro Product Engineering at JLR, said, This facility, a core component of our Rymagine strategy, is essential to providing the advanced testing capabilities that will be vital to the performance and reliability of the modern luxury vehicles that we are developing. Andy Street, Mayor of the West Midlands, said, This brilliant news from JLR vindicates our ambition to place our region right at the forefront of both automotive excellence and the transition to electric vehicle production. West Orchard Shopping Centre will fall silent on Armistice Day, which is Saturday, November the 11th, as 4,000 poppy petals are dropped in a poignant service to remember those who have served and died in conflicts across the world. The poppy drop will be the centrepiece of a moving service at the shopping centre, which will begin at 10.45am in the yellow corner of Level 3. Introductory speeches from West Orchard's manager Andy Talbot and Coventry's Lord Mayor, Councillor Jaswant Singh Birdie, will be followed by prayers led by the Reverend Richard Hibbert from Holy Trinity Church. At 11am, a bugler from the Coventry Corps of Drums will sound the last post to begin a two-minute silence, during which time the poppy petals will be released from the shopping centre's domed roof. To end the service, the British Legion will deliver the exhortation and Kohimar Epitaph to remember those who have lost their lives in battle. The manager, Andy Talbot, said, The poppy appeal is vital to help pledge support for those who have fought for their country and served in the British Armed Forces. Our service remains a simple and powerful way in which shoppers and visitors to the city can pause for thought to remember anyone who fought and gave their lives in battle, whether during the First and Second World Wars or in more recent conflicts. A truly special Coventry venue has made it into TripAdvisor's top 25 best hidden gem attractions in England. The Coventry Music Museum is not only loved by those in the city, but also by many much further afield, as it has been ranked among the best places to visit based on travellers' reviews and experiences. The Walsgrave Road Museum, the lifelong vision of Coventry music historian and journalist Pete Chambers and his wife Julie, champions all of Coventry and Warwickshire's music. This includes the sounds of two-tone, and the special's naval staple is one of its patrons. The Walsgrave Road Museum makes it onto the list alongside such locations as the Birmingham Back-to-Backs, Hook Norton Brewery, Highgate Cemetery and Ramsgate Tunnels. One reviewer said they make a special trip from Wales to visit it every year. They posted, It's not just for Scar fans, it's got something new every time we visit. Such a great place. The staff are all volunteers and they are so knowledgeable and helpful. Out of 1,308 reviews, 1,217 said it was 
excellent. Coventry Building Society's old headquarters in the city centre will be given a new lease of life as campus for a business college. Plans to change the use of the empty bank building and make small changes to its outside have been given the green light by the City Council. The four-storey 1960s block called Economic House was bought by Oxford Business College in a 2.6 million deal in September. The Business College is a private HE college based in Oxford which provides a range of courses including undergraduate business degrees in partnership with universities. It has three other UK campuses and earlier this year launched a major recruitment drive for 150 roles. In Coventry, the new business school will create around 60 jobs in its first three years, according to the owners. Up to 250 to 350 students will visit the site on its busiest days, and the college will open during the evenings and at weekends. A report by a council officer said that the scheme would be likely to bring economic benefits to the city through extra visitor numbers and by repurposing a vacant building. Other benefits include a new green roof and the removal of an unsympathetic extension at the back. Ukrainian educational leaders who have been working in bomb shelters and through blackouts have visited Coventry to take part in a programme dubbed a beacon of investment in the war-torn country's future. The University of Warwick welcomed 40 educational professionals from Ukraine to take part in the Leadership for Educational Transformation programme. Those taking part looked to use the programme as a platform to find and develop a strategy for the future of Ukraine's educational system. The programme was launched by Ukraine-born Dr. Bo Kalestin from the University of Warwick Business School, who helped to design the scheme in partnership with the Ministry of Education and Science as they look to transform Ukraine's education system when the war is over. Participant Diana Rakus from the Ministry of Digital and Transformation of Ukraine said... Keeping the economy of the country running remains our most important task, as it is impossible to successfully defeat the enemy without it. Although travel has become more difficult, taking at least two days to reach some of our desired locations, the world has become close to Ukraine, and we have expanded our horizons and united our hearts and skills for one common goal, to win and make Ukraine prosperous. Seven Trent Water has announced plans to help 100,000 people into work and out of poverty by 2030. The Coventry-based company is pledging to provide free and accessible skills training, work experience placements for young people and opportunities to help people in the city reach their full potential and prevent them from falling into poverty. Focusing first on the Henley Green and Folsom areas of the city, Seven Trent will collaborate with local businesses, organisations and groups to reach more people and boost opportunities. Coventry and Paul Evans, Community and Education Lead at Seven Trent, said, With us being a big employer in the city, Coventry is home not only to hundreds of our colleagues, but thousands of our customers. So we absolutely want to drive positive change in its communities. 
The company will deliver employment training in local schools as well as the community. This will involve CV writing workshops and 500 work experience placements a year across the Midlands. Heather Black from the Business in the Community organisation said, I look forward to collaborating on their ambitions to bring about change and to support equality across the city, particularly in areas like Falls Hill, where deprivation levels are very high. A Windrush display of photographs unveiled at Coventry Station as part of Black History Month in October is intended to become a permanent feature of Platform One. The project is a collaboration between Avanti West Coast, who managed the station, and the Museum of Youth Culture, who held exhibitions in the Herbert Museum and Art Gallery as part of Coventry's year as City of Culture. The photographs were taken at Waterloo Station in London in 1962, as people were greeted by friends and family after making the journey from the West Indies but they were underexposed and remained unseen until 2014, when scanning technology enabled the lost images to be recovered. Station manager Maria McCarran said, These displays are always really popular with our staff and customers who find them fascinating. It's important we celebrate this period, and I'm really pleased that the display will stay up at Coventry Station permanently. Jamie Brett, Creative Project Manager for the Museum of Youth Culture, said, These are such beautiful images of people arriving at the train station, dressed up and wanting to start a new life for themselves. The photographer who took the pictures, Howard Gray, is working with the National Railway Museum to help track down the people he featured. If you think you might know anyone pictured, get in touch at search.engine at railway-museum.org.uk Startling claims about speeding have been made about some Coventry streets with suggestions that some drivers tear along at 60 miles per hour. They were made as part of a poll launched to see what roads people would like to see become a 20 mile per hour zone. Broad Street in Falls Hill was highlighted as one street in desperate need of speed restrictions with claims that cars do reach 60 miles an hour. Other roads name-checked included Four Pounds Avenue, Earlston Avenue South, Broad Lane, Grange Road in Longford and Valley Road in Stoke. The poles split the city with some strongly for the idea of the speed limit and others vehemently against. Among suggestions for the speed limits were all roads with a school in and all roads in the city except A roads, dual carriageways and the ring road. Other responses to the poll, however, argued that speed limits outside schools could be dealt with through school zones while one response argued that no roads in Coventry should be subject to 20 miles per hour and that the London road limits should be raised back up to 40 miles per hour. A hub which helps people to find work will soon be opening at West Orchard's shopping centre in Coventry. The job shop will move from the bull yard as plans move forward for the huge city centre south development. 
First opened to the public in March 2012, the job shop has helped 12,500 people into employment and works with 200 businesses a year to support recruitment. It will be taking over part of the space previously occupied by Debenhams on Smith, Smithford Way. It is understood that the new shop will open from 9.30am to 4.30pm. Councillor Jim O'Boyle, Cabinet Member for Jobs, Regeneration and Climate Change, said It will be in a much better location that is more central to customers and close to the central library, which a lot of job shop customers also make use of. An historic steam locomotive, dubbed as the Grand Dame of Luxury Travel, is to make a special stop-off in Coventry this Christmas. The Northern Bell train will be calling into our region on Sunday, December the 15th, to host one of its Christmas lunches. Its 1930s Pullman-style carriages once formed part of the iconic Orient Express, and passengers are promised an experience that transports them back into the golden era of rail travel. The Christmas lunch trip will depart from Coventry at ten past twelve, calling at Birmingham International Station to pick up more passengers before making a leisurely journey around the area. It is due to return to Coventry at 5.50pm. Passengers will be given a champagne reception before tucking into a seven-course Christmas lunch from a British seasonal menu. There will also be onboard entertainment, including a table magician and strolling musicians. At the end of the journey, a special memento will be given to passengers. A spokesman for the Northern Bell said, From the moment you step aboard one of our exquisitely decorated 1930s-style Pullman carriages, time slows down and you will be transported back into the days when nothing was too good for those sophisticated passengers who demanded to travel in true style. <laughs> but the price is anything but 1930s. Fares on the train start at £395. Outlook News And that's your roundup of the local news for this week with Elaine and Pete. As I said before we started, Pete is a new voice. Welcome, Pete. I thought we'd want to tell the listeners who you are and where you've come from. So, uh, welcome to us. So, uh, what made you come and join, or think about joining us, shall I say? Well, th thank you very much, Nigel. Yes, um, in terms of joining the uh, centre here, I saw an advertisement for someone wanting to help join the st uh, help start the walking group. Oh, you're involved with that, are you? So ah, right. I do that on a Wednesday morning. Yes. And when I was looking at the other things that the centre do, my father was involved 30, 40 years ago in the talking newspaper in Hartford where oh, he lived yes. when he first retired. So it was something I knew about yes. and have always thought what a really good thing it is 
Welcome, I hope we can persuade you to stay. Thank you, I've <laughs> enjoyed it today. Tell, tell me a bit about yourself. I, mean, I, I, I can guess from being very rude and say you're probably retired. I am retired, yes. yes. What were you doing before? I'm a retired school teacher. Oh, right. I worked uh, as a history teacher at uh, King Henry VIII School just oh, down the road in, in Coventry. Uh, as I said, teaching history and also doing sports teams, yeah. rugby, cricket, a little bit of hockey. Yeah. Um, and I retired in 2022. Oh, right. So you had a year out, you might say. Yes, I took a year out to just get, get used to retirement and yes. get organised, uh, and then now involved in a number of things, including uh, the centre here. Excellent. Well, I hope we can uh, carry on inviting you here regularly uh, as yeah. a new voice to the uh, talking newspaper. No, thank, thank, thank you, so, Now, just before we move on, I've got, of course, the, the regular announcements. Uh, the usual one, of course, is the sunrise and sunset. Uh, with the hour change we've got, now the sun rises at 7.02 in the morning and it disappears in the afternoon at 4.30. Uh, and I have just come across a little thing which is the Belgrade's advertisement for their next uh, productions. And I'll just do a quick run through to see if any of them whet your appetite. Firstly, we've got Cinderella, which is going to run from the 22nd of November to the 13th of January and tickets for that will be priced from £15 upwards. And then on the 7th, 24th of December, so that's at the same time as Cinderella's on, of course, there is Santa's Sparkly Surprise, uh, which will be £12.50 or thereabouts. From the 30th of January to the 4th of February, we've got Shrek the Musical. And prices for that are, are quite a high, from £34. The 7th to 11th of February, there is the fantastically great woman who changed the world. Uh, and there the prices will be from £18. Then going a bit further into February, on the 14th only, just for the one night, the Ukrainian National Opera presents La Boheme. Uh, and prices will be from £18. And on the next night, the 15th of February, the Ukrainian National Opera again presents Carmen with prices from £25. So that's a little bit of a, uh, taking the glory out of Sarah's uh, um, book of, of what's going on. Uh, but I thought it might just whet your appetite to thinking about what you want to do in the early part of next year. And uh, so it's now time, as usual, to find out what's happening here in the centre. And here this week, not you, but Joe. Hello, everybody. It is indeed me again. Uh, rather late notice. Hugh has <laughs> been caught up in a meeting. So, as I've just been discussing with the others, I am now the official understudy. Well, it's like Pete, he's been throwing the deep end into the news. You've been throwing the deep end into the Well, there's a lot going on at the centre, of course, as usual. So, I've just been trying to think about the highlights. Um, so, got a number of things just to either repeat if Hugh's been talking about them or mention to you. Um, so, I will start with our uh, special poppy display, which is going to be on the 11th of November. Uh, thanks to Joe Proctor and the Craft Group and quite a few other local community groups who've been hard at work over the summer crafting uh, poppies in all sorts of different materials and formats including plastic the base of plastic bottles and uh, vinyl seed, uh, vinyl records not CDs vinyl uh, LPs and CDs and various things they've been molding into bird feeders and they've been doing a whole load of work but mainly the thing that I wanted to mention is that they will be doing we'll be, we're going to do a visual display from all of this individual craft work that's been going on they're putting all the poppies of various 
uh, forms onto a very large canopy, I suppose is the best word. Camouflage netting. Camouflage netting. Thank you, Elaine. That's right. And that will be draped down the uh, front of Boston Lodge just by the entrance to the resource centre. So it will hopefully be quite large and quite dramatic. Uh, so even those with little sight left, hopefully we'll see something of it in bright red. And uh, hopefully people from the road and walking past, will it will get attention. So the main purpose behind it, obviously, is Remembrance Weekend. And we wanted to join in in some way. Um, so we will be promoting blind veterans who are uh, a very good organisation. We'll have some posters up on the boards outside to link that in with them. We're trying to get hold of a collecting tin from the, um, who is it that does the poppies, what are they called? Oh, British Legion, Royal British Legion, thank you. So I'm on the case of trying to get some poppies and a collecting box for them. And then we will make a little bit of money, I think, from um, a craft sale that we will do with it. And we'll be on the forecourt uh, on the Saturday, the 11th of November, from 4.30 to 6.30. Uh, just talking to people about the poppy display, uh, selling some craft items and some teas and coffees and maybe some cakes uh, for our own charity. Excellent. So hopefully it just makes a bit of a splash, gets people's attention in a new way. Um, if anyone would like to bake any little cakes that people can buy on the evening, we'd be very uh, pleased to have them. Maybe just simple little... Um, my brain's gone dead again. Fairy cakes, Elaine. It's a good job Elaine's here, isn't it? My brain's gone. <laughs> um, she's, so she's your stage prompt. She it? is. That's right. I do need a, a prompt. <laughs> um, so, yes. Yeah, so, um, if you feel up to baking a cake and you want to bring that in just before the 11th of November, we'd be very grateful. Um, on that same weekend, obviously the Sunday is the 12th, and I imagine that Coventry's Remembrance Parade will be on that morning, and I think we are expecting to be invited, because we are part of the Lord Mayor's charities this year, so uh, I would anticipate that Hugh will probably be present at that uh, official uh, service and march. I don't know whether you march with them or you just join them in the park at the end, but uh, mm. that would be quite nice. We'll tell you more about that when we know. Um, so that's the poppies and relative matters. Um, the 17th of November, some of you may have heard about this, so I'm just mentioning it. I've been organising a quiz night on the 17th of November, but it's actually specifically designed for our supporters. So it's not so much for, it's not an activity we're running this time for everybody, but I just wanted to mention it because I know the word has got out. So this is really um, a one evening, uh, 7.15 to 9.30, uh, on Friday the 17th of November. Um, we're calling it Edwina's Quiz Night because Edwina, who many of you know is deaf-blind, she actually asked if she could do it and she is designing, writing all the questions. And with the help of Sylvia, her co-worker, her support worker, she will be asking most of the questions that evening. Um, we have an invited audience. I've been trying to reach groups out there who support the charity. So we'll have a staff and a trustees team, we've got an allotment team, volunteers, uh, we've got another volunteers team, possibly two, and we've got a team from the Learfrit Lions joining us. And they are uh, very long-term supporters of many charities in Coventry, but the Coventry Resource Centre as well. They did a lot of work to support Rosie and Trish when uh, they were first setting up the charity. And they are having a bit of a changing of the guard. Some of the people who've been working with them for many years are stepping back a little bit. So they've got a new committee joining. 
and I thought it would be a good time to make some fresh links with them because they do such fantastic work all over the city and we would love to be continuing our relationship with them and for them to continue to fundraise for us. So that's what's happening that night. Um, and then I'm sure you would probably have mentioned the 2nd of December is the date for our winter warmer. That'll be between 11 and 3 on the Saturday the 2nd. We will be organising transport and we will be welcoming any of you that want to come. Um, <clears throat> Hugh, no doubt, will do his spectacular kitchen fair, as usual. Um, we are looking for any ideas. If anyone has any bright ideas on fun things to offer on a day like that, I'd love to hear them. Um, we'll probably have the usual things of uh, tabletop sales and tombola, but if anyone's seen anything that works in any other Christmas fairs previously or this year, we'd love to hear about it. It's always difficult coming up with new things. That, uh, Lucky dip. Lucky dip? Lucky dip might be a good one, yes. I'll write that down. Thank you, Nigel. <laughs> it has come across my okay. pathway before, but you have to write these things down. Yes, um, we'll have some kids' games available. They always go down quite well. But limited space that we have, you know. But it would be nice to do something that feels appealing to people. Um, and lastly, um, a bit of potentially good news. I have managed to put in a funding application, uh, which is just being finalised, but is successful. And that will allow us to bring in seven new PCs, computers and screens, large screens, for the IT room. Uh, those computers have served us very well over many years. They're, they're replacements there. They are they? replacements. Yeah. Uh, the new ones will have much bigger processing capacity and we're hoping we'll get bigger memory on them as well, which basically should allow them. I'm no techie. I can't pretend to know what all that means. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it, the, the, the upshot will be the screens will be bigger and better um, and we'll be able to run all of our adapted technology, assistive technology on the new computers at more speed, more reliability, less problems with things not working when they should do. So not quite sure exactly when we'll get the money, but I don't think it'll be long before we get those, so you might see new equipment. Nice investment, then. Yeah, yes. good investment as mm. well, exactly. Good. So that's another success I'm very pleased about. So I will just wish you all well, and uh, I'm sure Hugh will be back to speak again next week. He, he's around now, but he's hidden himself away in a he, meeting. He, he is away, <laughs> but he's hiding in his room in a meeting, yeah. an important meeting, I'll give him sure, that. Yes. Um, so anything you need from us, please feel free to call anytime or uh, speak to somebody in reception. Uh, we're always here. Good. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thank Joe. Thank you. Bye. Now, to find out more about the round ball, the ovoid ball, and other sports alongside, no doubt, many others, here's Sarah with this week's Sports Roundup. Outlook Sport. And hello there listeners and welcome to Sarah's Silly World of Sport. Now as usual I'll start off with the local football. Well, I'm afraid Coventry City haven't been doing very well. <clears throat> Midweek, well it was Wednesday... They headed up to Rotherham and they lost 2-0. I'm afraid I can't really comment on the match because, to be truthful, I found it very boring. Rotherham aren't exactly one of the high flyers in our league. And then to add insult to injury, Sheffield Wednesday, 
who who are at the bottom of the league and hadn't won all season beat Rotherham on Sunday 2-0. Hey-ho. Oh, well, out of a possible six points with the Rotherham and the Bristol City match, that was a big zero we'd got. Now, I need to give a big apology at this point. Because last week I said what I heard on the radio that Coventry were away to Preston North End on Saturday. So I sat down all ready to listen. But they weren't. They weren't playing. In fact, they weren't playing until Monday night and they were at home on Monday against West Bromwich Albion who the radio kept reminding us, or this could have been Sky TV, I was hotting between the two, were only 20 miles apart, but in a different standard. Well, they scored first, and their first goal was, sadly, a mistake by our usual reliable goalkeeper, Ben Wilson, who kind of pushed the ball away straight into the path of an oncoming striker goal to them their second goal was well it was a traditional City mess up because City players thought there was going to be a flag for an offside and they just stopped playing the flag never came but but West Brom's goal did they were 2-0 up now at that point I'm afraid I turned the radio off in disgust and went and fed the cats. However, I found out the result on Midlands today at 10.30 and yes, that was the final score. Coventry nil, West Brom 2. So out of a possible nine points, Coventry have got the big zero. It fascinated me actually, just before I turned off, to hear Steve Grizovich say well I don't think City need to panic if they carry on playing like this they'll soon be well up the top of the table mm-hmm not in my school of maths they won't now I promise 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 you I have checked this with my speaker friend A-L-E-X-A and on the City website and on Saturday the 4th of November At 3pm, Coventry are away to Preston North End. Their next home match is on Saturday the 11th of November at home to Stoke. Going down a league and change of gender to the women's game. Sadly, Rugby Borough women in the cup lost to hashtag united 2-0 and yes that is genuinely what their opponents are called they were formed out of a twitter campaign to establish a game to establish a team and so the hashtag kind of stuck and it's certainly memorable but they beat our local ladies Now it's even sadder news for Nuneaton Borough at the moment. They have been locked out of their ground over a rent dispute. 
This first came to light on, I think it was Wednesday night, when they were due to have a home match, which was hurriedly rearranged at Hinkley Town. Thank you, Hinkley. Anyway, Nuneaton won that one. But this weekend they were playing in the FA Trophy and they had to surrender home advantage and play away, basically, for somewhere to play. But it didn't harm Nuneaton because they came away 2-0 winners against Hyde United, who I understand are up near Manchester. Meanwhile, Stratford, also in the cup, were away to Nantwich. Nil-nil at full time, but sadly Nantwich won on penalties. Now, Leamington, having already exited the FA Trophy, had played one of their normal league matches in the Southern Premier, and they drew one all with Telford. Turning to the ovoid ball in the Code of Rugby Union, Coventry played their actual first home match of the new season and took on Coldy. It was 14-5 to Cov at half-time, but it finished an amazing 45 points to 5, with Cov scoring 6 tries. Hopefully, boys, if you can keep it up, it's going to be a great season. Now, England played Argentina in the playoffs for the bronze medal in the World Cup. And they clung on by their fingertips and came out 26 points to 23 points winners. It all looked to be going towards extra time at a draw when Argentina were awarded a penalty kick, but their usual reliable kicker missed. Phew, England will take that. Anyway, for a team that really went into the World Championships most unfancied, they ain't done too badly. The eventual winners of the tournament were South Africa, beating New Zealand by 12 points to 11. Interesting fact, well I think it's interesting anyway, South Africa won their quarter-final, their semi-final and their final, each by one point. That's the way to do it, boys. Now I'm going to finish the main bit of sport by talking about a sport that I don't normally mention, and that is cycling. Now, leading on from what I told you last week about sportsmen not knowing when to retire, at the age of 38, Mark Cavendish, with his much-vaunted retirement season last year, has announced that he wants to have another year or two. He really wants to be the overall stage winner in Le Tour de France and of course next year there's the small matter of the Olympics as well now talking about Le Tour the course has been announced and Cavendish is apparently shocked by how hard it is 
The biggest change this year is it isn't finishing with its usual grand parade at Le Champs-Élysées in Paris because it's a small matter of a big sports tournament in Paris a few days later. I think it's the Olympics or something. <laughs> anyway, it starts on June the 29th and finishes on July the 21st, just five days before the Olympics actually begin. It goes up the Alps twice and up the Pyrenees once before finishing eventually, much to the relief of all the cyclists, I'm sure, in Nice. And finally, now this makes me laugh, but it's probably just my warped sense of humour. One of the South African rugby players who came on as a reserve is called Winnie LaRue. Mm-hmm. Now, at first I was thinking, now, what, it should be called something else. What is it? And I was thinking, I must be thinking of that great drag queen, Danny, as in Danny LaRue. But then it suddenly struck me. No, I was thinking of Winnie the Pooh. And of course, can't you just see the little brown bear now in his red shorts, so he must be a Welsh bear, puts down his honeypot, picks up the ball and wends his way round all the hefty players, probably through their legs, and scores a try. Well done, that bear. And that has been your very silly ending, sport. Have a great week, folks. And don't have nightmares about the city. Bye. Well, the image of a little brown bear running up the rugby pitch and scoring a try is certainly one to ponder. And while we ponder that, we move on to your spotting outlook, Postbag with Dave. This is Postbag. Join in the discussion. Hi there, welcome to your Postbag. And we welcome member of the Outlook team, Elaine, to start us off this week. Elaine once helped me with a report on the cookery course at the Resource Centre, describing beautifully what goes on there while her hands were in the sink washing up. She writes, Hello Dave, I've really enjoyed your visits to the Black Country Living Museum, especially the Doris Day record, and hearing about the chain for the Titanic's anchor. When the hairdresser said about tea sets, I thought of the quinoline lady design that was my nana's pride and joy. I must correct the Freeman's article that Bill read, because tea's maids are definitely not a thing of the past. My husband uses one every day, and he bought a new unwanted gift, one in the charity shop only yesterday. That's to be a spare. Keep up the good work, Elaine Talking Newspaper. Thank you so much, Elaine. My mum's pride and joy was a spode teapot. 
My parents had a tease made. It wasn't working properly, though, and it was quite capable of waking you up at any old time with a nice cup of tea like two o'clock in the morning, so we didn't use it. Uh, Janet of the Monday Club also told me how much she enjoyed Graham and myself's report on the Black Country Living Museum. Graham is 50 now. When he was 16, he took me to first to Cadbury's World when he paid for me to get in as I had become unemployed. Then he took me to the Black Country Living Museum where the batteries in the recorder ran out and we went to a nearby electrical shop where the owner kindly gave me some more free of charge after I told him we were doing a report for blind and partially sighted people. Here's Graham signing off from the museum, age 16. Okay, well I hope you've enjoyed your trip to the Black Country Museum, Dudley. So it's cheerio for me and cheerio for me. I hope you enjoyed our trip to Cadbury's and the Black Country Museum and I hope you'll go there as well. Okay, thanks a lot Graham, bye bye. In our latest report from the Black Country Living Museum, Graham played the piano in an old cottage. Edwina tells of the day a music man came to her house to entertain her. Hi everybody, it's Edwina. Last week I had a very surprising visitor turn up. My carer walked in because of course she got a door key and she got a young man with her. She introduced me and he was completely blind from there and she was just taking care of him for the first time. So he sat on the sofa and he got something with him. Well, my carer went to the car and fetched it. It was a keyboard, so he played some music to me. It was amazing because he'd never seen and he did some beautiful long pieces of music. I was in a dream world because I absolutely love music. So we sat enjoying listening to him playing and had a bit of a chat as well in between and cups of tea. He played for two hours and then my carer said, we'll have to go now. So I said to him, I've really enjoyed this session that you've done. I said, I'd like you to come again. And he said he would. That was a big surprise, and it gave me a lot of pleasure. Take care, everybody. Bye. Julia, though, played the didgeridoo at the Monday Club recently. Her latest report is entitled, When I'm King of the World. I've been thinking about what I would do if I had a grillion pounds. I'd start off with a lovely holiday. Maybe I'd go to New York and have a cup of tea. Then I would visit Florida for some biscuits and cake. 
I might see that nice President Rude noise too. I think he lives in Florida. I would travel to other places too. My friend John wants to go to New Orleans. I wish he would. It would get him out of my hair. It would be nice to go to one of those churches in the Bible Belt where everybody sings and jumps up in the air and shouts hallelujah. I would jump up and down and shout hallelujah if my friend John disappeared. I don't think he will though. I've been waiting a long time. I had a go on a didgeridoo on Monday, but I didgeridoo-didn't. I made a rude noise with it though, just like that nice Mr. Trump. Everyone's heard my rude noise. I'm a good trumper, Julia. Well, you did really well, Julia. This is Julia having a go on the didgeridoo. Julia also goes to the Torch Fellowship at Earlsden Methodist Church. Nigel Sullivan would like to make a correction to our announcement recently on Outlook. Hello, this is Nigel Sullivan, uh, ringing on behalf of Coventry Torch. Thank you ever so much for announcing our, our, our restart on the 28th of October. Uh, well, one, of our, one of our friends said it was announced as starting at 3 o'clock. Well, it is, we do start at 2 o'clock now. I don't know if it's too, if it's possible to correct it for the next edition, but definitely all our meetings now start at two o'clock. But thank you very much for, for mentioning it in talking newspaper. But guys, if I can just underline that again, please, that we, we actually start at two o'clock now, uh, and we start again on the 28th of October. Thank you ever so much. Bye. So the Torch Fellowship meets on the last Saturday in the month at Earlton Methodist Church starting at 2 p.m. Graham listens to local radio and thinks that the changes in BBC CWR may not be as serious as first thought. Well, it's been a week since the cutbacks in local radio have been introduced in this area. And it's been interesting to hear presenters saying goodbye to their listeners. Molly Green was in tears when she said goodbye to her listeners on her Saturday night breakfast programme. Sorry, Saturday morning <laughs> breakfast programme on BBC WM. She's worked on CWR occasionally. Uh, she lives in Eastern Green, actually. And I can remember when she first started um, reading the travel reports for what used to be called the AA Road Watch. But I don't think uh, CWR presenters have done too bad out of it, actually. Uh, we know Trissy Dudu does the afternoon programme on WM and CWR. Laura Bailey, Lorna Bailey seems to do the breakfast programme, which goes out on a number of stations. And even Letitia George, who I've always regarded as a second-rank um, presenter, has got a programme a weekday evening between on Tuesdays and Wednesdays between 6 and 10 on Haverford and Worcester and 7 and 10 
on the rest of the stations. No wonder they didn't put up much of a fight during the industrial dispute. On the other hand, uh, Rob Gurney seems to have joined, joined the sports team. Uh, Clyde Eakin replaced Rob Gurney when he moved to WM many years ago, but now Rob Gurney's come back, uh, so we've got Rob Gurney and Clyde Eakin, though Rob seems to have taken up quite a large portion of the sports output. I just wonder what Clive feels about that. Thank you, Graham, and for your messages this week. Just to let you know that the music therapy group, or aphasia singing group, that Sheila belonged to following a stroke is restarting at Earlston Park Village, Albany Road, Earlston, on Monday the 6th, 13th and 20th and 27th of November, and the 4th and 11th of December between 12.45 and 1.45 p.m. It's to help people whose speech has been affected by a stroke. And Julia was asking me to find out about the touch tour for the pantomime Cinderella. It's on Saturday the 9th of December at 11.30 a.m. with the panto at 2 p.m. You have to book for the touch tour, which is free, and you have to pay for the pantomime. If it's the same as before, the carer gets in free, and the audio description headsets are £5 from the desk, which you get back after the show. Please let's hear from you next week. You make all the difference. Bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. So your message is this week in Postbag with Dave as usual. Now, this week and for the next few, Margaret has taken her stories from Coventry Echoes of the Past, written by Frank Roden. This time, she recounts Coventry as seen by writers through the ages. Coventry as seen by writers through the centuries. Many fair towers in the wall, stately churches in the heart and middle of the town. Many fair streets, well-builded with timber. John Leland, about 1539. Commodiously seated, large and neat, fortified with very strong walls and adorned with beautiful buildings. William Camden, from his topographical survey, Britannica 1586. Now flourishing with fanes and proud pyramids, her walls in good repair, her ports so bravely built, her halls in good estate, her cross so richly gilt, as scorning all the towns that stand within her view. Michael Drayton, 1612, Polyobion. The buildings are very old and in some places much decayed, the city may be taken for the very picture of the City of London on the south side of Cheapside before the Great Fire. 
the timber-built houses projecting forwards and towards one another, till in the narrow streets they were ready to touch one another at the top. Daniel Defoe, during his tour through Britain, 1724-27. to 27. Much of the past, in soaring stone and carved wood, still remained in the city. J.B. Priestley, Autumn 1933 With Halloween just a few days ago, maybe you still recognise the restless spirits, like the fearless ghost, guide, ghost tale guides from English Heritage, who share with us a few of their spookiest stories from their haunted houses, abbeys and castles. From Kenilworth Castle in Warwickshire, we hear of the ghost cot and the deathly bride. Kenilworth Castle has more than 900 years of history, so it's hardly surprising to discover that many people believe its skeletal ruins are haunted. Staff members claim to have seen a ghostly child running across the stable roof before disappearing, while others swear to have seen the silhouette of a cot in the Elizabethan bedroom rocking all by itself. It seems that almost every historical site has a mysterious, mist-like female form that haunts its grounds, staircases or hallways, and Kenilworth is no exception. Here there is more than one theory as to the identity of the White Lady. Perhaps it is the ghost of Lady Amy Dudley, the first wife of Sir Robert Dudley, although she died in Oxfordshire. Or maybe the ghoul was the daughter of the royalist commander of the castle from the early days of the English Civil Wars. Another theory is that it's the lost soul of one Constance Hazlett, an unfortunate young woman who died in the grounds of the castle in the mid-1800s while searching for her lost love on her wedding day. With so many accounts of sightings from visitors and staff, it's hard to believe that this could be a figment of so many people's overactive imaginations. From Scarborough Castle in North Yorkshire, we hear of the jilted lover and the executed rebels. The 12th century castle at Scarborough has seen many troubled times. Slighted in the English Civil Wars and damaged during the naval bombardment of 1914, the castle walls could tell a thousand stories. Perhaps the most well-known spectre at Scarborough is that of Piers Gaveston, friend, confidant and maybe even lover to Edward II. When he carried the crown at Edward's coronation, many nobles were furious at his growing influence. A baron's rebellion saw Gaveston seeking refuge at Scarborough, but the revels laid siege to the castle taking Gaveston prisoner. He was beheaded in June 1312 on Blacklow Hill. It is said his headless corpse continues to haunt the castle. The castle was witness to many other horrors. In 1557 it was besieged again, this time by Thomas Stafford, who proclaimed himself protector of the realm and incited rebellion against Queen Mary. Stafford was executed at Tyburn, 
and several of his followers were executed at Scarborough, where their bodies were boiled and tanned before being put on public display to warn off other would-be rebels. The tortured spirits are said to walk the grounds to this day. From Bolsover Castle in Derbyshire, we hear of plague pits and the hell chamber. Only the most intrepid ghost hunters should take the ghost tales tour of England's most haunted castle. Once William Cavendish's pleasure palace in the 17th century, the castle is now home to a cast of spooks and spectres, from ghostly horses in the riding school to a whole army of equine ghouls making their way home from the English civil wars. The plague pit in the castle gardens was the final burial place of hundreds of victims who succumbed to this dreadful disease and whose restless spirits something continue to haunt the grounds to this day. Visiting mothers have claimed to feel a child holding their hand only to discover there is no one there. The culprit is said to be a young boy who lost his own mother many centuries ago after tumbling to his death from the tree in the courtyard. Inside the little castle, a baby can sometimes be heard crying. An illegitimate child, taken to its untimely death, in the castle kitchens perhaps. And within the castle, William Cavendish himself has been said to touch the legs and face of female visitors, while exotic smells waft through the air in his former bedchambers. At night, stay well away from the Elysium Closet, once known as the Hell Room, where it's said that if the words sleep no more are uttered, death will be swift to follow. From Carlisle Castle in Cumbria, we hear of restless royals and the licking stain. Ghost sightings are unsurprisingly commonplace, at Carlisle Castle, which is something of a gruesome history. Among the spooks is King Stephen, who lost the castle to David I, King of Scotland, in 1135, while fighting a civil war with the Empress Matilda, his rival for the English throne. His restless ghost was supposedly seen walking the halls by a soldier serving at the garrison during the 1840s, and was blamed for military kit going missing and causing an air of dread and paranoia among the troops. In winter, when a chill wind blows down from the north, it's also said that the spectre of Queen Mary of Scots returns to haunt the place where she was imprisoned. While some staff members claim to have heard the swish of velvet skirts across the snow, Others swear they have seen a ghostly figure kneeling on the lawn of the Lady's Walk, as if in deep prayer. When the Jacobites were defeated at the Battle of Culloden in 1746, many men were brought to Carlisle and locked up in the dungeon. Carrying dreadful injuries, they were kept in the dark, as their own filth piled up around them. With no access to food or water, the men resorted to licking the damp stone walls of their cell. Today, it's possible to see where the stone has been worn into a pillar 
by the desperate tongues of these starving, thirst-driven prisoners, whose voices and cries for help have been heard by visitors and staff alike. Some of you will have your own shivery tales, but I hope none of you find that they're too shivery around Halloween. Hot on the heels of this week's ghoulies and ghosties of Halloween, there's the rockets, Roman candles and firecrackers of November the 5th, as we remember Guy Fawkes and his failed attempt to blow up the Houses of Parliament. And as well as remembering Guy Fawkes, each year we also remember the horrors of the Coventry Blitz. But one of the great what-ifs of the war is whether a little black box on a crashed Nazi bomber could have saved Coventry. This is an extract from the book The Battle of the Beams by Tom Whipple, read by Keith. The Reverend Richard Howard looked across the roofscape of Coventry. It was the night of November the 14th, 1940, and the air raid sirens were sounding as he stood high above the nave with buckets of sand. Uh, ready to smother any incendiary devices that might fall on the medieval cathedral of St. Michael's. Then, on that clear, cloudless night, a bright moon shining, he watched as the German bombers arrived in the skies above. With them came hell. Although the Reverend Howard didn't know it at the time, there was one fewer bomber than there should have been. Given the fate of that missing aircraft, there could arguably have been no planes at all that night. Eight days earlier, on the 6th of November, the most important secret in the European air war was contained in some wires inside a metal box. The little box itself was in the cockpit of a handful of German bombers. And, somewhat inconveniently for the Luftwaffe, on this particular night, one of those boxes, along with the Heinkel 111 aircraft it was fitted to, was about to plough into Chesil Beach on the Dorset coast at 100 miles per hour. British intelligence knew the Germans were planning a major raid. It would be the single most concentrated attack on a British city in the entire Second World War. Codenamed Moonlight Sonata, it was intended not merely to attack, but to obliterate. From the ashes of the destruction would, Luftwaffe hoped, come proof of a long-held theory about aerial bombardment. If you massed enough modern bombers, you could crush a nation's will to fight. For the Germans, though, there was a potentially catastrophic problem. That little box in the cockpit of the Heinkel that had crash-landed after running low on fuel contained the most sophisticated precision bombing technology the world had ever seen, a device called X-Gerat. It would enable the lead group of German bombers to find the city they were destined to obliterate. If the British found the box, on the other hand, they would have the information to potentially stop them. When the Second World War had begun, both sides knew the key to victory in Europe was winning the war in the air above it. Now, a year in, they had both accepted another strategic insight. For air supremacy, you needed airwave supremacy. 
even as fighters parried in the Battle of Britain and bombers swarmed in the Blitz, another hidden, desperate conflict was intensifying the battle for the radio waves. When those Luftwaffe bombers crossed the Channel, they were tracked by British radar. A chain of British transmitters pinged out a burst of radio waves and waited to see which bounced back. In that first desperate year of the war, radar was one of the key reasons Britain had been able to survive at all. The Germans had radar too, but for them, fighting an offensive war, the radio spectrum offered an even more useful weapon, precision navigation. Each night, Nazi tough scientists projected thin radio beams over Britain. With one beam, you could paint an electromagnetic highway in the sky, directing the bomber force to its target. With another beam, intersecting, you could tell them the moment to drop their bombs. X marked the spot. It was utterly ingenious. With admirable pragmatism, the Nazi high command had created multiple beam systems, each a slight iteration on the other. So if the first was discovered and defeated, a second would rise in its place. And as the war progressed, the airwaves would fill up. And, like the undersea soundscape, in which each click and whistle, each burst of sonar, each fish evading the sonar, is part of a furious evolutionary competition. So, in the air above Europe, there was a profusion of weapons, devices, and countermeasures. Ingenious men and women would design airborne radar to spot planes from a night fighter aircraft, and their counterparts would design receivers to spot that radar in turn. There were radars that could make out the outline of Berlin from 20,000 feet. Meanwhile, there were German anti-aircraft guns that could distinguish the bomber through thick cloud and shoot back. And there were night fighters that could spot all of these radio waves bouncing around and lock on to the bomber that transmitted them. In the final years of the war, Britain even installed transmitters powerful enough to broadcast into the cockpits of enemy pilots in the German language. In one bizarre exchange, crowded radio communication bands descended into farce, as two controllers, one German, one British, both insisted to the pilot of a German plane that they were the true operator. Don't be led astray by the enemy, warned the German radio operator before, exasperated, he swore. This provided the RAF operator with his opportunity. The Englishman is now swearing, interjected the Englishman in German. Then came the reply from the German, it's not the Englishman who is swearing, it is me. Before all that, though, there was the period that became known as the Battle of the Beams, when scientists on both sides fought for the ability to navigate, or deny navigation, in the skies over Britain. And Keith will conclude uh, the recounting of the Battle of the Beams and the competition for supremacy next week. There's been regular coverage in the media about smoking, 
and the efforts to reduce it. But while smoking has definitely declined, vaping has seen an enormous growth. Julie Powell, writing in Good Housekeeping, tells us about the facts of vaping, which is an article I came across and recorded earlier. Since vapes were first sold in the UK in 2007, their popularity has grown, with an estimated 4.3 million regular adult users. They're also one of the main ways for adult smokers to kick their cigarette habit and help the government reach its target of the UK becoming smoke-free by 2030. Although it's illegal to sell vapes to anyone under 18, there have been growing concerns that vaping is on the increase among young people. Research by the charity Action on Smoking and Health, ASH, shows that in 2023, 20.5% of children had tried vaping, up from 15.8% in 2022, with experimental use up 50% and many young people saying they had been tempted to vape just to give it a try. The fact that 69% of under-18s who vape use disposable types has prompted the Royal College of Paediatrics and Childcare to call for a ban. Vice President Dr Mike McKean says youth vaping is rising at a dramatic rate and we're calling for a ban on disposable e-cigarettes because of their disproportionate use among young people. Vapes are still relatively new. They aren't risk-free, and their long-term impacts are not known. Experts agree that vapes are much less dangerous than cigarettes, as they don't burn tobacco and produce tar or carbon monoxide, two of the most damaging elements. But misinformation means many smokers mistakenly believe that vaping is equally or more harmful to their health than smoking. Smokers aren't addicted to tobacco, they're addicted to nicotine, and nicotine doesn't cause cancer. It has very few adverse effects on its own, although it is highly addictive, explains GP Dr Sarah Jarvis. Public Health England says vaping is at least 95% less harmful than smoking. There's a cocktail of at least 70 potential cancer-causing chemicals in tobacco smoke that you don't get in vapes. This is backed up by a comprehensive review of the health risks of vaping carried out last year by the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience at King's College London. Dr Debbie Robson says, We assessed the levels of toxicants in the bodies of vapors versus smokers and found significantly lower levels to cancer and respiratory and cardiovascular disease in vapors. Levels of toxicants in people who vape compared with non-smokers or non-vapers were either the same or slightly higher, which led us to conclude that while vaping is not risk-free, particularly for non-smokers, it poses a fraction of the health risk of smoking in the short to medium term. But as Dr Jarvis explains, there is a condition called EVALI, e-cigarette or vaping use-associated lung injury. It's very serious and first came to light among young people in the USA in 2019. However, it appears that rather than nicotine vaping, many cases were among people using marijuana contaminated with an addictive called vitamin E acetate in their vapes. The guidance is that if you are an adult smoker, vapes can help you quit. If you don't smoke, then don't vape. And if you do vape, 
Don't add anything to your device. E-cigarettes could help adult smokers quit. A 2019 trial by the National Institute for Health and Care Research and Cancer Research UK found e-cigarettes were almost twice as effective when used with the behavioural support compared with other types of nicotine replacement therapy. They help with both the physical and psychological addiction. According to the NHS, the rituals and routines around smoking can be hard to break, but the hand-to-mouth action of vaping and similar sensation when you inhale can help you cope with the physical nicotine withdrawal symptoms. There's also no evidence that vaping is more addictive than cigarettes, but people can become dependent on vapes. People typically absorb less nicotine from e-cigarettes, explains Dr. Robson. With cigarettes, you smoke in a very concentrated burst, but with e-cigarettes, you puff intermittently and less frequently over a longer period. So you might think it's more addictive because you're vaping more than you smoke, but that's not the case. Worryingly, more than 2.5 million illicit e-cigarettes have been seized by trading standards since the start of 2020. These illegal vapes don't meet UK safety regulation and there is no way of knowing how much nicotine is in them. Earlier this year, illegal vapes confiscated from school children in Worcestershire were found to contain high levels of lead, nickel and carbonyls, potentially cancer-causing chemicals similar to the ones found in scrap smoke at ten times the level of those in legal vapes. If a vape is very cheap, claims to have a thousand puffs or more, or looks like a food product, then it is likely to be illegal. The government has announced a new illicit vape enforcement squad to stop illegal sales and remove banned products from shops, and plans to close a loophole that allows the industry to give out free samples to children. There have also been calls to ban disposable vapes, but there are concerns this will fuel a black market in these products. John Dunn, Director General of the UK Vaping Industry Association, explains that at the moment there's no restriction on who can sell vapes and it is calling for a retail licensing scheme and robust age verification. We'd also like a £10,000 fine for retailers who sell to under-18s. And there is less financial disincentive for rogue retailers and distributors. Recently, a court imposed a £26 fine on a store that sold votes to a 14-year-old. Quite ridiculous. Deborah Arnott, Chief Executive at Ash, says, What we need is better regulation, not scaremongering, which we know doesn't put young people off. Ash has called for a £5 excise tax on disposable vapes and stricter regulation on design to ban cartoon characters, sweet names and light-up vapes. Maybe if you've got views on vaping, whether you are a vapor or not, let us know in postbag. And now, back to history with the hurdy-gurdy days around 120 years ago in Coventry with Alan. Round the top of our court were four houses, which were away from the noise of the children and the drunkenness of the men coming home late at night. They were occupied by old people. In the second house was Mrs. Greasley, such a sweet old lady, but bedridden with arthritis and stone deaf. She must have been in constant pain. Her hands were all swollen and misshapen. Ma'am used to do a bit of washing for her, and the neighbours, including Mrs. Trapp, used to empty her commode from time to time. 
Mrs. Greasley stayed in bed all the time in winter to keep warm, and only had a few sticks of wood with which to boil a kettle for a cup of tea, as she couldn't afford much coal, and was too proud to ask for what she called charity coal and parish relief. All she had was five shillings a week old age pension. Her bed was up in the corner under the window, so she couldn't go upstairs. In the middle of the room was a deal table covered with all sorts of commodities like tea, sugar, condensed milk, bread and margarine, cup and saucer, plate, knife, fork, spoon, a bowl, soap and towel, which she had to rely on the neighbours to give her. There was also a chest of drawers by the wall which contained her clean sheets, towels, etc., which ma'am used to air for her, as she had no fire. It was very dirty washing, as the sheets were covered in flea marks. On the floor were two cloth rugs, made from old coats and trousers. Some days, in what she called a tidy-up, she got up and got clean sheets out of the drawers herself. But on cold, wet days she couldn't move, so had to rely on neighbours. Poor Mrs. Greasley. Although Grace was so small, she used to sit and chatter to her, or rather shout at her, and the old lady used to look forward to the child coming. After Grace had been shouting at her for about five minutes, she would hear tap-tap-tap on the cobbled yard outside, and knew it would be old Mrs. Smithers, who'd lived two doors away with her son Joe. Mrs. Smithers was nearly blind and had a wooden leg. The children used to shout after her, "Oh, Granny Pegleg! Poor old girl, our mum used to say. Her son was about thirty. He had married, but his wife had left him, so he had come home to live with his poor blind mother, who couldn't really look after herself. He was an upholsterer, and worked at one of the leading furniture shops in the town, and sometimes he did repair jobs for our neighbours in his spare time. He would bring an old chair into the yard, and with his mouth full of tacks, hammer away, fixing the webbing underneath the seat. This used to fascinate Grace, who used to watch him at work, tipping his head back as he filled his mouth with tacks, then quickly taking them out one by one. She was always afraid he would forget and swallow some of them, and wait for him to gulp, but he never did. He was a sullen sort of chap, never speaking to anyone. He was short with a ginger moustache like our dad's. He always wore his cap, so nobody knew whether he was bald or not. He even wore it in the house, and Grace used to wonder if he wore it in bed. His mother would never grumble at him if he did because she couldn't see him properly anyway. Poor Mrs. Smithers used to make an excuse to come up and borrow a bit of tea or sugar whenever she heard Grace's voice shouting at Mrs. Greasley, so to pick up any gossip she might tell her. She had very sharp ears like most blind people. She was unable to go far. Her only journeys were to the closet and the water tap, which must have been an ordeal. Her eyes were open, but white with cataracts, which were never removed in those days. She always walked by the wall, using her hands to feel wherever she was. Sometimes Grace would ask her if she wanted any water fetching, but she would say, It's all right, my dear. Joe fetch some when he comes home. She was very independent, and thought she might have to give her half-penny 
to Grace, and she couldn't afford that. She had no teeth, and her grey hair was parted down the middle with a wide parting like our grand's, with a knob at the back. She always wore a little black shawl round her shoulders whenever she came out into the yard. One day during the next winter, which was a very sharp one, a neighbour found Mrs. Greasley stiff with cold. Her lips were blue and she was unable to speak, so she fetched Mrs. Trapp, who thought the doctor ought to come. Poor Mrs. Greasley knew that if she came he would send her to the dreaded workhouse and that would be the end. But she couldn't only use her eyes like a dumb animal to implore them not to call the doctor. Eventually, however, he had to come and he ordered her removal to the dreaded workhouse where she only lived another week. Our man and Grace cried and so did old Mrs. Smithers who had lost her only friend. Very soon after Mr. Smithers had to go to the workhouse herself, as she had now become quite blind, and it was too much for her son Joe to look after her, as she was not safe to be left alone, and he had to go to work. When any of the neighbours went to see her, she would implore them to take her home. She didn't live long after that. Poor old gal, as our ma'am used to say. The old people were terrified of the threat of the workhouse in those days as they knew when they went there, it was really the end. And more hardy-gurdy days next week from Alan again. Now, Dave's not one to be daunted by the ghosts of Halloween, and to prove it, he and Graham went on a ghost train ride at the Copswood Miniature Railway. Yeah, a big welcome to the spectacular Railway! <laughs> there we are! <laughs> right, welcome to Copswood Railway, Halloween! Great stuff! Anyway, tell me about the railway, the GC Railway. I mean, yeah, that thing. It was started in uh, 1959. Yeah. And it was started by mem- uh, employees of the GC. Yeah. And from there, uh, when the GC folded within Coventry, mm. the uh, people that were running the, the, the trains carried on yeah. and kept it going as a club. That's right. And we are still on the same grounds as we were back then. That's it, that's the GC sports ground at Copsley. That's right, right. that's right. Um, and we've now got two tracks. We've yeah. got a five inch gauge which uh, runs around the cops as you yeah. drive into the yes. Copswood. And we have a seven and a quarter which runs out of our station next to our clubhouse. Mm. Goes round the curve to the far end of the football fields and comes back again. And basically it's all run by volunteers. Yeah and enthusiasts. Yeah, that is a really long track, isn't it? That's quite a long track, yes. Is that the longest major railway track in Coventry, you think? Or do you uh, think, no, think, think it's longer than Kingsbury Water Park? No, definitely not longer than Kingsbury Water Park. It's a fair distance, though, <laughs> It's a fair it? distance. It is yeah. great. So it's, 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 I mean, it's nice that something of the GC still remains. I yeah. used to work for them for 23 years in total. Oh, yeah. right. Yeah. Okay. No, I wasn't around when uh, the GC. Yeah. I wasn't in Coventry then, but yeah. uh, I'm the treasurer, and uh, no, yeah. welcome very much to our club. Okay, thank you. So, so there's going to be some scary things then. Uh, well, on the track. 
We'll see. <laughs> okay, thank you. Alright, thank you. Bye. Hey Graham, I'm sort of, what's for sale? There's some hot dogs or something? Yeah, hot dogs and cheeseburgers and... Okay, right, fair enough. Great. Have a cheeseburger. Great, okay, thank you. Looking forward to going on the, uh, the railway? Yeah, yeah. Great, excellent. Well, it's a spectacular Halloween train ride. You've got some uh, memories of a programme about uh, witches. Um, there's a witch called Higgity Haggerty, which uh, George Cole used to read stories about this witch. And also, there's the prop uh, banks that appeared in uh, Emu's TV series as well. The, the evil grot bags, yeah. That was grot bags the witch. Yeah, grot yeah. bags the witch, yeah. That's it, remember that. In, in spin-off series, a while called grot bags, yeah. Yeah. So, do you remember the gala days there you used to go on the GC? Yeah, I remember some of the GC parties I went to, yeah. GC and, parties, yeah. And some uh, films I saw at the Odeon by the GC. Yeah. Yeah, outings, yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's the Alien Cinema, yeah. That's right, they had outings. Yes. They had gala days, and my uncle George, I remember him doing Punch and Judy at one, because he used to work at the GC. In fact, most of the family worked at the GC. It's <laughs> <laughs> a big employer at the time, and it closed around in the 80s, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Right, we're standing here waiting for the train at a station that's called Tidesley Station. And there's some ghosts hanging up, small ghosts. We've got some bats. We've got some bats hanging up. Werewolf mask. Yeah. So, spooky characters. Skeleton hanging. So, what about Tidesley Station? Um, the Shakespeare Express steam train is based there. Yeah. And also, they have these also restore trains there. Yeah. You also have a working turntable where you can turn trains around. Wow. So what, so what do you do? What's your name? Uh, my name's Grace. I'm only helping out today. Yeah. That's my partner on the end, Alex. So he yeah. comes every every week and helps on the trains. And um, they have a great time. Yeah, they love it. So, so is Alex the guard? He is the guard on this one. And, and so who's holding the green flag? A uh, little boy's going to wave it for him while he blows the whistle. Oh, and you're off. We're off. Thank Have you very much. Well. That was lovely. Thank you very much indeed. Bye-bye. Woo-woo. Oh, so there's a ghost by a tree on the side of the track. And uh, along with the track there are ghosts with skeleton faces. That's quite a few of them, actually. Look, quite spooky. And there's a gravestone, R.I.P. You can certainly smell the smoke now. There's lots of ghouls by the side of the track, as Maurice Chevalier may have sang. Thank heaven for little ghouls. It's certainly a long trip around the football fields, and there's a train coming in the opposite direction with an orange engine. And we're being pulled by a great engine called Vesuvius. And we're going to the woods now. More ghosts.
just emerging from the woods again. I just heard a scream there. <laughs> Maybe it was my imagination. Yeah, you, you heard the scream. Yeah, yeah. Right, and it goes forward now, yeah. Yeah. It's a really long track, isn't it? Yeah, there's a man working by the side of the tracks. What's he doing? He's putting sand on the tracks. I'm assuming to make the um, chains, chains run on the tracks, possibly. Possibly, yeah. Okay, he's doing a good job. We're going quite fast now, are we, Graham? Yeah, right. Hey, wow. So, are you enjoying the train ride, Graham? Yes, good, yeah. Because <laughs> uh, uh, here at Fullhurst, screaming a couple of times. Yeah, that's right. There, there was some screaming going on from the woods. Hello there, hi. Alright, we're going back towards the station now. It's been a great ride. Lots of ghosts either standing about or lying about. Tisley Station. So, what did you think of the train trip, Graham? Enjoy it? Yeah, very good, yeah. It was fantastic. I say thank you very much, and that's all from the, uh, the, the spooktacular at Copswood Sports Ground, Stoke. Okay, bye from me, Dave Monks. Bye from Graham. Bye. Right, there's uh, Dave back home, slightly grey ahead, and Graham's not quaking too much after his ghost train ride uh, on on the military railway, which about brings us to the end of this week's edition of Outlook. But as ever, we will be back with you next week. So with that, it's goodbye from me, Nigel Hewan, and the rest of the team here. <laughs>